0: Dobre, odpoledne, po třetí už dneska. dneska. to tady, teďka to tady nějak. Uh, let me switch to English, because we will have international speakers again. Uh, welcome you to the uh, third, fourth panel today, which will be on the topic, uh, why should we care? What are the implications of uh, disinformation? And you have two uh, brilliant speakers, my ex uh from Brussels, uh, Finn. Anneli Ahonen, currently with the Cardiff University, and uh, for the second time today, uh, Narius Mariakivicius, Vilnius University. Uh, We wanted to have a panel on like the security, military dimensions of the disinformation threat, but I also thought we should add the real-life implications not just the abstract security so so you know about the pizzagate conspiracy where edgar welsh drove all the way from north carolina to washington dc and he started shooting from from a rifle in a pizza restaurant because he was persuaded that there is a pedophile conspiracy We had a very similar case here in the Czech Republic. Uh, A pensioner consuming uh, disinformation-oriented outlets was persuaded that Czechs are not afraid enough of Muslims, so he tried to stage a terror attack that he would blame on on Muslims. So, So we have people who are willing to threaten other people's lives based on disinformation. COVID disinformation has definitely cost thousands of lives, although we don't know how many. So we do have cases when disinformation costs lives, uh, capital riots as well. Aneli, do you see any like similar instances, or do you see that yeah, disinformation is is killing people? <laughs>
1: uh, well, thanks, Jakob. This is uh, <laughs> I mean, very quite uh, tough heavy topic to to start with, uh, uh, especially with uh, with festival guests here in the audience. Uh, but I think it's it's very important. Um, so yes, definitely. As as uh, like many who have been working in countering disinformation, I think that one of the most difficult things is to explain to our policymakers, uh, political leaders, but also to to everyone um, uh, the the actual threat of disinformation. What what kind of threat uh, it is, uh, and I think that like oftentimes we need some kind of uh, wake-up call, like a, a certain disinformation incident or campaign to make that point. And, and, and then our political leaders do understand that, but only a certain period of time. Uh, so this has happened in the past. We have seen it uh, so many times with, uh, with uh, Russia attacking Georgia, Ukraine, uh, U.S. elections 2016, several other elections in, the, uh, in, in Europe, uh, in the Baltics uh, uh, and elsewhere. But I think that when, uh, Jakub, you, you asked me if there are more examples of of like real uh, impacts of disinformation, then I think that two very recent uh, cases uh, really have shown to everyone and to our political leaders uh, what this is about. Uh, and those are uh, COVID-19 and then now the, now Russia's invasion of, uh, of Ukraine. So with COVID-19, I'm sure that, that you also have a relative or a friend, uh, a family member who is believing in disinformation or against uh, vaccinations or against COVID-19 restrictions. Uh, and we all need to then learn how to how to talk to these people, how to how to uh, get them out from from those uh, rabbit holes where they where they are. Uh, but with COVID nineteen, so it's 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 quite obvious that when it comes to to people's health uh, um, and 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 like health security, uh, that's that's a very direct threat. Uh, Uh, that disinformation causes. Uh, Then with Russia's invasion of Ukraine um, in February, uh, I think that what we could see there is that we all sort of knew and and saw uh, how Russia has been manipulating uh, also its home audiences, justifying its its consistent and continuous aggression against Ukraine. and we knew that it's it's possible to turn all this disinformation into into much more uh, damaging uh, action, military action, and get the support for that uh, at home. And now this is what we this is what we uh, can uh, witness happening at the moment. And then maybe a, a final point um, or future future threats or what could happen next. Um, I think that with, with Russia's invasion, we have seen also increasing targeting of individuals, Ukrainians, uh, Russian oppositioners, wherever they are, um, and harassment uh, or publishing their personal details on social media, spreading them around, and and sort of giving the uh, the signal to attack these people, Uh, and I think that this kind of radicalization is is a potential future threat that could also become much more visible in in other countries, not only inside Russia and Ukraine.
0: I remember that uh, Timothy Snyder, in his uh, Road to Unfreedom, he was uh, showing stories from, from Ukraine where soldiers in 2014 were coming to the east of Ukraine quoting this uh, disinformation about the crucified boy—you know—we had to come here because because you crucify children, you you evil fascists—and uh, that that was actually another proof that some people are willing to kill other people because of a lie, because of a disinformation. So, mm, if we move on from these rather, you could say, tactical examples to the more strategic dimension uh, Nerius, so how how does disinformation fit into this? Mm, military slash security thinking of the Russian Federation? Is this actually the desired effect they are looking for? Like, for example, dead people or or bigger damage done by a pandemic?
2: I think uh, one has to uh, think about this challenge in in maybe a dual perspective. First of all, I think there are uh, objective technological changes that break down the traditional you know media structures filters and and, and so on and therefore this chatter, uh, information chatter, or even information noise becomes more visible, uh, networked, and and, and, and so on. And that goes objectively. Therefore, uh, there is no, uh, you know, institutional media authority anymore to kind of uh, uh, review, recheck, and, and, and so on. But then there are uh, players, and I'm not speaking just, uh, you know, individually about Russian uh, approach or Chinese approach. There are political players that, uh, um, you know, uh, use this opportunity. And they simply, uh, you know, uh, there's this uh, Noam Chomsky idea about manufacturing consent. I I take it uh, vice versa about uh, manufacturing distrust or uh, manufacturing uh, distraction. I mean, there is more and more uh, players that uh, uh, you know wash out the facts, the truth, and, and, and so on, and they are doing this. Uh, uh, you know, uh, simply uh, benefiting for the uh, you know goals, political goals. Uh, uh, Russian, you know, strategic goals, for example, and, and, and so on. So I think, you know, if we look into it systemically, there is this objective reality that makes uh, many multiple actors, uh, you know, use this opportunity for, for their benefit. And, uh, you know, when you asked uh, uh, whether this uh, and how disinformation information kills, I, I, I would say it, it kills and it makes kill. I mean if we look into the russian aggression in, in ukraine uh, the soldiers are indoctrinated uh, to be killing nazis right nazi regime to free uh, russian speakers and, and and so on and this uh, you know narrative is is put as a as a as a top kind of a direction to to, to achieve those goals uh, when we speak about how disinformation kills it kills i think uh, uh, um in, in two ways. Uh, there's uh, uh, you know long dying and a quick kill. I mean what I mean by by a, a long killing is probably the way um, if we remember the tobacco uh, companies hired lobbyists and, and and players you know a century uh, ago to, to, to kind of uh, uh, build up distrust in scientific fact about uh, smoking. And, uh, you know, although there were multiple, uh, you know, researchers' facts about how smoking kills, uh, there were, uh, you know, players who were whitewashing those facts, and and, and that was a long kill for generations. Uh, uh, It can be interpreted the same tradition with uh, climate change, where you have multiple players you know, building distrust in this because of economical benefits and, and, and many others, but then there is a quick kill by disinformation, and I probably would uh, uh, have several examples. One one of those uh, definitely is the, uh, related to COVID, uh, this disinformation, and the case where. Uh, in Iran, uh, you probably know this case where around 700 uh, people died because of uh, alcohol uh, poisoning, because there was this uh, uh, rumor spread uh, that you know you can heal yourself from COVID by drinking alcohol, and the alcohol they drank was uh, simply methanol, right, uh, the, the poisonous alcohol, and there were multiple poisonings, and and, and so on. So disinformation kills. Uh, it, uh, it it it's not just a problem with uh, uh, you know uh, hazardous outcomes. It's about uh, economic uh, costs uh, with that. So with where, when there is multiple uh, chatter and, and, and disinformation, it makes it difficult to control. The, for example, uh, you know COVID measures, right? So so. You, you need to invest even more to, to challenge all those uh, disinformation and, and rumors. Uh, and I mean, from maybe our Lithuanian perspective, uh, looking already into Russian strategies in this, uh, we have multiple uh, you know, um, endeavors by uh, multiple uh, activities uh, or active measures by, by, by Russia to challenge our defenses, NATO defenses in the Baltics. So starting from 2016, 2017, we had uh, uh, very interesting cases of disinformation against NATO troops in, in our territory. Uh, one example was about alleged rape of uh, a little girl uh, in Jonava uh, near the military base by German soldiers. And it was a repetition basically of the same rumor that happened in Germany with a girl Lisa case, which was allegedly raped by migrants, which never happened, but, but then this chatter, this rumor uh, was heard in, in uh, the strategic, mi- strategic minds of, of, of a Russian you know, uh, disinformation um, operatives, and they did the same case against NATO. So I think disinformation is really a, a, a big challenge, but we usually look at, into it as a kind of a, some aggressive kind of a players are doing this nasty stuff and, and so on. And I think we uh, miss the objective reality, how disinformation more and more becomes a objective problem because of the changes in the whole media uh, environment and, 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 and so on. And the, therefore, ergo, I, I, I go forward with this manufacturing of distrust idea, right? That it's, it's, you can really work hard on that and then, then you have the breakdown of traditional authorities, institutions, and then trust.
0: Actually, if we could stop at this this case of this uh, allegedly raped girl, if I remember correctly, that was uh, February 2017, almost exactly a year after this Lisa case. And, and I think it's actually quite instructive to have a look at how the case was handled in Germany, where we had like dozens of thousands of people demonstrating against uh, the refugee policy of the German government compared to Lithuania, where there was practically no reaction at all, if I remember correctly. <laughs> it,
2: but it, that was because I would say, uh, uh, you know, we are used to this kind of, uh, on, the, on this information frontline, we are used to kind of uh, disinformation attacks like that. But additionally to that, mm-hmm. uh, uh, the messaging, this disinformation messaging didn't get much of attraction. Uh, because our uh, filters in Lithuania worked quite well on, on multiple layers. Uh, in this case, there was a hack of a media uh, outlet, and this fake uh, news article was inserted. So it stayed for just several hours on, 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 on this, uh, you know, information. Environment and it was taken down. Then there was an email sent with the, this fake article to the politicians and, and so on. But it didn't get traction because you know politicians rechecked and then the institutions reacted. I, I don't want to look like we uh, you know per se are more resilient to that. It just was the case that you know our checks and balances worked quite well at the time. I uh, totally um, take a possibility that uh, someday, or you know, some sometime, such kind of aggressive messaging can go through the filters, and, and it will be a result like in Germany, because in Germany the problem was that this uh, fake was spread in Russian language information bubble, which was not monitored by German, you know, uh, authorities and, and so on, and then they were themselves surprised. What, what happened in the end. So I, I think it's, uh, you know, the, the details are quite interesting, intriguing, and in all the disinformation uh, activities.
0: So, so do you think the main difference is actually that simply Lithuanians are more familiar with this kind of weapon compared to, for example, Germany? Uh, uh,
2: yes and no. I, I, I would say that, uh, yeah, we, we have this gut feeling of how things are done against us. But with this specific campaign, I would add that uh, it was an initial stage of the whole, uh, it's called ghostwriter campaign, and and, then later active, uh, uh, you know, attacks. Uh, It was, uh, uh, in Russian, it is called, or to translate it, you usually do an intelligence by a way of small battle. You check the defenses, what works, what doesn't. And I mean, in this case, I would suggest that probably uh, Russia was uh, testing defenses uh, on this uh, attack. Then there were others attacks like that. And then they were adapting themselves to, 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 to this kind of uh, environment.
0: Hmm. Anneli, uh, you and I were working in the Brussels unit, you versus Disinfo. Uh, it wasn't a very big unit, let's face it. <laughs> but given what we talked about, would you say that the response of European governments, and including actually the EU institutions, that it is adequate, that it is proportional when when we look at the scale of the threat and and the fact that, yeah, disinformation is killing people?
1: Um, Well, I think that that since when you started and then I joined later the the EU team, from those times, uh, I think that it has the response has grown more proportionate to the the threat um, as there is much more understanding and awareness of of the disinformation threat uh, in itself, within the governments in in Europe. Uh, Some of these wake up calls have been so serious that they have actually worked and and the the funding, the resources behind uh, like Europe's democratic responses, uh have been increased uh, so that there is more there are more people working there are there is more money behind there is more quality uh to the work uh but I think that it's still um well it's still not uh it's still not enough it's it's uh there are many there are many countries in Europe that don't uh, understand or take this uh, disin- disinformation threat as seriously as as the frontline uh, states as our um, also the Nordic countries uh, have been have been understanding the the uh, the threat quite quite a long time uh, but not this this doesn't work in 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 all the European countries um, so I definitely think that more would need to be Done uh, and also what has been uh, disregarded quite uh, quite a long time are uh, the, the role of social media platforms uh, in as a channel to to spread disinformation. Could could you
0: actually say a bit more about the states that do not take the threat seriously
1: enough? I mean, can we
0: say which states they are and why is it happening and? So perhaps, do, do we as a community that is talking about this problem, are we doing anything wrong? Should we be doing something differently to actually make the policymakers react in a more robust way?
1: Uh, well, I think, I mean, there there are ways how to increase coordination and cooperation between the, the countries. But then the, the local situations are so different that I think that every country still needs to find their own uh, solutions and their own way to... Uh, to approach this, that there, there will not be a universal way to uh, where where the whole of Europe can can somehow fight the disinformation in in exactly the same uh, way, but not to. <laughs> it's difficult for someone to, from uh, a former EU official to point any fingers at any other EU me- member states, but I think that, for example, the the problems that have been. Uh, in the media landscape in, in Italy have become very uh, visible during now Russia's invasion and the, and the way how Russian propaganda is infiltrating uh, the mainstream media uh, there. So these kind of uh, quite obvious uh, problems I think that would need to be like, urgently tackled.
0: And we'll be talking about the reaction of, of uh, European governments and European civil society on, on the on the final panel. So, so maybe back a bit more to the military uh, security angle. Mm. In some of the Russian strategic documents, you would really find that information is the first phase of uh, a more kinetic uh, war. Um, recently, I was in Slovakia, and one of the security experts there was telling me that... Uh, What some of our decision-makers do not understand is that we are already in this war, and that in case we lose this information phase the kinetic phase might come. Do you see it similarly? Is really information already Mm. the first phase Mm. of something that we are currently seeing in Ukraine Mm. and is it really a threat that in case we lose this information phase something worse might come?
2: Well, if you uh, really go into deep dive into Russian military, you know, theory and documents on the non-kinetic kinetic, that that's the uh, probably outcome that you would read uh, that basically they consider using uh, you know not kinetic means as a way of uh, you know military strategic operation and in the end if you achieve your goals by those non kinetic means information wise uh, and 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 others then you don't need to use you know hard military power and then you achieve your your, your goals i mean in in many ways uh, this is how the war changed, changed historically i mean uh, traditionally if you look into first world war second world war you know uh, History of wars, there were usual uh, those um, uh, declaration of of uh, war or ultimatum, right? Like a genre in itself. Uh, if you look into contemporary wars, you don't have this war routine anymore. I mean, uh, in in multiple wars, you have uh, it start in different ways and only later, you know, you have tanks rolling in and, and, and so on. So uh, in many ways, this this is the conclusion that we could be already in in the war by via thinking uh, and, and not ready for defenses, right? So, but I don't want to, to again, to be too much... Uh, alarmistic like that, uh, uh, you know, their uh, uh, reality check in military terms and in in information warfare terms uh, in Ukraine uh, ended up in in shatters in many respects. So uh, that doesn't mean that we are per se already losing it. We we could be in the war, but uh, maybe we will, I don't know, wake up in a timely manner, hopefully, yeah?
0: And in this regard, should actually, you know, the the, the Russian state pseudo-journalists like, you know, Dmitry Kiselyov, Margarita Simonian, um, should they even be called journalists? Should we rather call them soldiers of the uh, Army of Russian Federation?
2: (laughs) I mean, uh, not maybe to the extent of, you know, soldiers in the Army, but definitely not the media, not the journalists and and, and so on. I mean, if uh, we would uh, look into the the history of uh, Russian war in Ukraine starting by 2014, we would have 2013 time period where before the invasion there was this grand uh, reshuffling of the whole uh, Russia and, and all of the Russian media system, basically weaponizing it institutionally uh, for the war purposes later. Uh, And uh, only later the narratives were weaponized and so on. So this basically goes in line to this idea that you can start a strategic military operation by those non-kinetic means. So, uh, but I'm I'm still short of saying that I don't know Kisilov and then um, Simonian are uh, you know soldiers. I think they are basically pro- propagandist state, propagandists and and, and and the like. And the, the whole sanctions mechanism should uh, be, you know, in full force against them and then and, and the assets, definitely.
0: I also recall that some of the uh, journalists covering the events in Syria received awards uh, from the Ministry of Defense. Not for reporting, not for journalistic work, but for participating in the war. So they—it actually seems that you know, if the Russian military makes it quite explicit that the people working on information are participating in our wars.
2: I mean, uh, I, I, I'm just uh, continuing on, on thinking on such kind of uh, you know media personalities in, in in Russia. I usually call them. The, the, there is even this information. Uh, Desantura in Russian terms, where uh, uh, guys like uh, Station and Kots, I don't know whatever those names say to you, but those are the, you know, Russian uh, info warriors in uh, Russian aggression in Ukraine. Uh, they basically do reports for Russia to- today uh, and other, other assets, but they usually end up in places to report before the fighting starts. The, ergo, I call them info de santura because by, by uh, appearing, when guys appear at, at those places, you can have a guess that things will become hot. And uh, with uh, this uh, new phase of war in Ukraine, the, you, for example, have Station who ended up in Donetsk doing reports for Komsomolskaya Pravda and then basically getting ready for, for this new new phase. Yeah, so uh, I I definitely consider them, you know, being part of of war effort. And even going further, we are now uh, having basically implosion of Russian assets in media assets in in Western, you know, uh, information space, meaning that we are banning Russia today and and, and so on. Uh, And we are having a very difficult discussion in the West that we are probably you know on the brink of going into freedom of speech and, and so on and i would consider thinking that those actions against those players against those cha- uh, channels is not uh, it's it, the argument is that they are being sanctioned because of the war effort and it's not a discussion about different opinions even propaganda and, and so on they are being closed because they are sanctioned, as economic entities are being sanctioned uh, that help war effort and and, and so on. So I think this is an important twist in discussing, you know, all 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 those issues with with Russian propaganda assets.
0: Anneli, could we talk a little bit about Finland so so we already know that that Lithuanians are taking this this matter extremely uh, extremely seriously uh, they are working on it on, on multiple levels uh, Finns also don't take the Russia threat lightly but uh, it didn't seem to me that there is the kind of same philosophy as in those Baltic states maybe it's because you feel a bit more safe your army is bigger uh, now you will be joining NATO so it will be even stronger <laughs> Uh, how, how does Finland perceive the threat of, of Russian disinformation?
1: I think that Finland has, uh, due to its history, there is quite a um, there is quite quite a strong basis for being very resilient against Russia's uh, propaganda and lies. So uh, the will to defend Finland is extremely high among the population, and uh, there are. Um, several institutions in, 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 in Finland that also support this, which is the uh, conscript army, uh, where every man is, is um, obliged to, to serve uh, in the army, and, and the uh, school system, which has traditionally like put all the kids from all the uh, social classes into, into, into one place. Uh, so there are no elite schools for, or, or working class schools. Uh, so these these are like quite strong elements in the Finnish society. I think that that uh, build this kind of resilience. Um, but then they are they have been. I think that Finland has has sort of been so far saved from many of that kind of aggressive actions that have been happening in Lithuania and against the NATO's presence in Lithuania. Um, probably due to many many reasons. Uh, one of which is that Russia probably hasn't had to do that. There have been other ways to influence uh, the Finnish debate, society and policies. Uh, there was still, until 24th of February, uh, a nuclear nuclear power plant project in Finland, which was fully funded by, by Russia, uh, fully in cooperation with Russia. So these kind of massive economic uh, benefits and, and common joint projects, of course give much more <laughs> benefits to Russia than, than, uh, than small disinformation campaigns. Uh, but then there are also other things like Finnish language is quite difficult to, to learn for any foreigner. Uh, I don't think that Russia has massive armies of, of uh, Finnish-speaking uh, information warriors at their use uh, either. So, so Russian propaganda in Finnish is often quite Re- like really low quality, which which also, uh, but there, there are ways to go around it so you can always use English language. Was, today. It, was it also
0: the, the, the reason why actually the, the Finnish Sputnik shut down after like a few months? Uh, because the quality of it the language...
1: Really yeah. <laughs> it was really bad. It was really bad. I don't think they, they managed to... So basically to... <laughs> we should
0: wish for a more <laughs> difficult language. <Yeah>. Uh,
1: yes. <laughs> But then you also don't have, uh, you know, the, 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 the there, there is also no Finnish language expertise in Facebook or Twitter or YouTube. So that's the other downside of that.
0: But on the other hand, Lithuanian also isn't the easiest language, is it? So, <laughs>
2: But, you know, our problem is that uh, majority, uh, older generation knows Russian, so... It, it overlaps with the, uh, you know, Russian language propaganda that is basically on all Russian info space in the Baltic states. So I mean, uh, it's a constant uh, technical challenge for Russian propaganda. I mean, there's there's technical and creative psychological challenge from you know, strategic uh, thinking of propagandists, you need to have an outreach for the audiences technically. So that means you have to have channels, you have to have, you know, language, you know, and and, and, and so on, skills. And then there is this creative part, how you really spin the stories that are uh, beneficial to, to, to you. So, I mean, you, you choose those different divisions and or you choose different topics and, and, and so on. And, you know, we can talk all day about this, but in the Baltics, we had this waves of different approaches. We had the, uh, this, those things done in, you know, television environments. So we had, for, for example, First Russian Channel establishing an intermediary in Latvia called Baltic Media Alliance. Uh, getting license from Britain in Ofcom to transmit to the Baltic uh, states, the, basically the repetition of uh, Russian state, uh, you know, television, and they were doing running those narratives uh, until there was a change in generations with the language competences, and they saw that there is a need to start. Uh, uh, putting Lithuanian subtitles to, to the programs. And then they realized that this doesn't help. Then they started Sputnik, uh, uh, you know, uh, projects. And, and and they are now getting into different platforms uh, from television medium into, you know, internet, social, social networks medium. So, I mean, this is a technical part. And then there is this... Uh, Creative part where you have to think uh, how then you will, you know, break confidence in NATO. I, I would uh, suggest really uh, looking into our experiences from 2016 and 17 when attacks against NATO uh, forward presence battalion uh, started in 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 the Baltic states and. Uh, uh, you know, looking into how Finland will be definitely will be challenged uh, after you know NATO decision that the NATO will be a target point in 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 uh, uh, Sweden and in Finland definitely, and they will repeat the same templates that worked uh, in in other audiences.
0: Actually, this yeah Finnish accession to to NATO it definitely is going to be some some uh, sort of. Uh... Uh, topic for the Russian disinformers. I presume uh, Finland is is getting ready for that. Do you do you expect like any uh, bigger disinformation campaigns with regards to this? And what would be actually the entry point if it's if uh, it's not via Sputnik? Thanks to the difficulty of the Finnish language, what would be the entry point? How do you find the Finnish weakness that you can exploit <laughs> if you're a Russian?
1: Um, I think that the, everyone in Finland was expecting uh, like massive disinformation campaign around the NATO accession, uh, and there were some signals and signs of it uh, before the, the final decision was made, uh, mainly in Russian language, where, where all the old uh, messages and narratives about uh, you know the same Finland being Finns being Nazis uh, or the historical. Um, and' stories about Finland um, and then like culminating in in Russian TV um, uh, threatening with with nuclear uh, arms and weapons both Finland and sweden if if the countries join so this is what happened before like in the preparation uh time i don't think they had any um Resources to run a real influence campaign against the the uh, the NATO accession. So that was quite, I think that was Russia's weakness actually. Um, but now, when when it's happening, um, I think that, that there has been a bit of silence from from Russia's side uh, side now. Uh, maybe they are uh, collecting their uh, you know energy uh, for for some future campaigns. Or maybe there's something happening which is not visible for us, what we can't see. Um, But that has created, I think that is one of the vulnerabilities that there was uh, like a lot of tension before the decision was made and people were very prepared for any any types of attacks. But now when there has been silence, people feel a bit relaxed and are are feeling more like comfortable again. and that's probably the time to to, to come up with a new uh, with new actions. Uh, but in general, I think that that both Finland and Sweden are are getting prepared for for quite uh, you know quite difficult times and and quite heavy actions from Russia's side. I, I think that at, at some point, uh, if we listen to what Russia is saying, what Putin is saying. Uh, and take that at at face value that this is what it means, then then, uh, repeatedly they have said for uh, six years now that if Finland will join NATO, then there will be uh, a a military technical response uh, and increased military presence at the border, which is 1,300 kilometers uh, between Finland and Russia. Uh, but I think that, that what uh, is very good to be prepared for is exactly the, the, the types of uh, ghostwriter campaigns uh, that Nerius was referring to, So, uh, which haven't been happening against Finland uh, yet. So combined hacking uh, and disinformation uh, campaigns, uh, that could be one way to get into... Into the Finnish debate, I think that that's what 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 Russia would be uh, aiming at is to get into either Swe- Swedish or Finnish domestic debate uh, and work through their uh, the weaknesses.
0: Um, I will actually stay with you, but uh, for the audience, just for in a few minutes we will open it up for the questions and answers session. So if you have any any questions ready for our speakers, please uh, uh, be prepared. Um, one particular weakness that that comes in mind uh, with with Finland. Uh, so so the media literacy is like extremely high. You can be proud of it. It's probably the m- best in the world, isn't it, in Finland or in the Nordic countries in general?
1: And that's what they say at least.
0: <laughs> um, but it seemed to me that this personalized online trolling can be a bit more successful in Finland than it could be, for example, here. That here when you get personally attacked by some troll on social media you kind of immediately dismiss it, you know, precisely because of the awareness we are used to this kind of thing. Whereas it seems to me that in Finland you would more often see like, hmm, maybe I should try and see it from his point of view, isn't there something? This this openness is generally like in 90% of cases a very positive quality, but in these 10% of cases when you meet a Russian troll it can be quite a weakness. And I think it's not a coincidence that the worst case of online personalized trolling we saw in the whole European Union was Finnish journalist uh, Jessica Aro, I, I don't recall a worse, a worse, worse case. So, so do you think that might be like one, one, one of the uh, elements that the Russians might be abusing?
1: Yes, I think there's truth uh, behind that claim. I, I think that it's, it's also um, like an opportunity to to see where Finland is going because many, many of the things that have become uh, real problems in many other countries like polarization and increased divisions within the society um, and all the social media um, platforms that are sort of um, accelerating that development. I think that that's, that's lacking behind in Finland so, so it has been Finland has been more uh, there has been more cohesion and more trust in Finnish society uh, and these divisions have not really been that big but now we can see what's uh, like what will happen in the future if this will also uh, be the, the, the future uh, for Finland um, when it comes to to Karo, uh that was also harassment like physical harassment many, many other types of um, of attempts and attacks and, and and ways to try to silence her, uh, so starting from phone calls and 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 getting through her personal history and publishing details about her, so all of that was sort of hap- happening at the same uh, time, um, and I, well, I, it takes really a long time, but uh, but at least uh, then the the criminals behind uh, her harassment, uh, a pro-Kremlin propagandist in Finland, Johan Beckman, was convicted in the end for harassing her. Uh, so I think that's that's something that is at least a, a positive outcome of, of that verbal case. So,
2: can I react to uh, the topic of trolling? I think uh, uh, the specific cases are very interesting, but I think in uh, Russian Kremlin's perspective, they are, you know, putting this trolling on the strategical level in many ways. I mean, uh, it's a kind of, you know, old old school active measures done with new technologies, and the active measures were basically to, to attack, discredit someone, you know, by physical means, uh, and now you have all the social network technologies to do that. I mean, uh, one one uh, example that comes into my mind, linked to, to the whole uh, campaign against uh, NATO in the Baltic states, in Lithuania, when we had uh, enhancement of our air policing in Šiauliai, uh, there was a uh, rotating uh, soldiers from uh, Netherlands that were put in Šiauliai uh, air base and the uh, uh, operation that uh, kremlin did on them was basically their relatives in uh, netherlands received uh, uh, calls with a distant distinct, distinct uh, you know uh, slavic accent asking do you know what your you know uh, husband uh, brother is doing in lithuania are they safe uh, are you sure and they they were doing this uh, with, uh, with all this you know, active measures approach, but using uh, the technologies, because in order to do that, you needed to use uh, electronic warfare means, basically to ping down all the cell phones, the cloud of cell phones from the airbase that called back home to the relatives in Netherlands. And then you have the whole potential pool of contacts for whom you can do an automated trolling right so that means that it's still you know aggressive trolling but you know it has political uh, you know benefits and and, and, and so on so uh, the case of jessica Arrow is as well that the person that started investigating uh, prigogine's uh, trolling factory got you know aggressive trolling back on the level you know so so this is a a, a, a very uh, a good example how basically Kremlin uh, amplifies old strategic, old war means of you know of those you know uh, espionage means or active measures means just digitalizing them. Mm. Terrific. Uh
0: So let me let me open it up for the for the audience. Do we have any do we have any questions uh, in the audience for Anli or Nerius? no <laughs> there's one in the back
3: yes hi thank you very much um, I wanted to ask you from a higher level perspective um, Sorry? Oh, uh, Disinformation as a warfare tactic, I think, has been used probably since the existence of organized armies. Today, the society has changed, but looking at it practically from a military perspective, how do you counter disinformation? Presumably, it's by debunking or by disinformation itself. Or what is the third alternative to it? And how do you see NATO's response uh, when it comes specifically to the Russian case? Thank you. Uh, it was a question to both, maybe for yeah. Dr. Malukovicius for more uh, social and maybe for Anneli.
2: Yeah, thanks, thanks for the question and uh, it, it, you you uh, posed the question from kind of military perspective so I would say militarily, uh, we, we, you know, again, uh, history is digitalized. PSYOP's history is digitalized. We, we have now uh, campaigns, for example, against uh, uh, Ukrainian troops on the front lines, getting leaflets, but not leaflets on paper, but getting SMS, uh, you know, messages uh, to surrender and then, then give up arms and so on. Vice versa, we have, uh, uh, you know, uh, military intelligence of Ukraine, uh, monitoring communication by Russian soldiers and making it constantly public and, and then, uh, you know, having their fight in this respect. How to tackle uh, those issues? So it's, it's the same way. First is technological challenges. How do you do that? So. Definitely, there is a complex of all cyber electronic warfare means counter electronic warfare means that comes in, in into play. But uh, on as you asked on the higher level, I, I would say strategically probably the most uh, important issue is. I mean, it's it's quite obvious. But first of all, to to have an initiative, uh, I mean, to dominate the information space. Uh, on your narrative, on your messaging, and eliminating your opponent from achieving this initiative. To give you an example, I, basically the, the traditional example in the case of uh, you know uh, Ukraine war was uh, before the February 24th the initiative by Western and American UK uh, you know communication on the pre-peered you know uh, operation and i mean uh, the way it was done uh, uh, by pub- making public intelligence data on that was a way of you know uh, stealing away from russia possibility to have an initiative on this operation with a whole narrative of you know uh, going out after nazis and, and 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 so on you know that the moment the kremlin started working on this narrative was just a Weekend before the the initial stage of the operation, they didn't have the possibility to to do that. Nevertheless, they did that. But um, in this uh, you know propaganda battle, they ended up deceiving their own soldiers on the causes of or the the military operation preparation because they were communicating that they are doing military drills and 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 so on and so on. In the end, we had the. Um, Russian soldiers in Ukraine being taken captives, and they were saying, We were thinking that we are in military drills in those initial stages. So, this is a constant battle for uh, initiative in the information space, but it is uh, additive with uh, all the technological means, uh, contemporary means. <laughs>
1: Yeah, so I, I, uh, when we look at, the, at this uh, this invasion uh, period now, I think that, that Ukraine has been extremely successful in delivering its own messaging towards uh, the, the Western audiences, and that's that's probably what needs to con- to to continue so that the uh, the help and support and and weapon deliveries uh, keep keep on continuing to. To Ukraine. Uh, so, what's sort of uh, out of all the tools and out of all the the, the response uh, ways, what have been used in what are in use in Europe now? Not in the active uh, military zone, uh, have been strategic communication. So, delivering your own messages, uh, debunking, and then also uh, shutting down down uh, Russia's uh, channels. So, so. Uh, like limiting the ways uh, where their messaging can come through uh, to our audiences. Um, And then the the social media uh, platforms that have taken their own uh, measures of of cutting down the information flows from Russia. Um, Is this enough? Um, I don't know, maybe maybe Jakub would like to. (laughs) comment on on that one. Uh, I heard you uh, referring earlier the survey results uh, from some countries where still that the support for for Russia's actions and aggression was quite high. So um, probably there would be uh, a need to, to do even more.
0: Actually, if you're interested in countermeasures against disinformation, the whole final panel will be just about them. Nothing, nothing else. Uh, but since, since you asked about, you know, whether we should be spreading some some disinformation of our own, I had a great great colleague in uh, in the Atlantic Council, Daniel Fried, uh, former uh, U.S. ambassador to to Warsaw, and uh, his his punchline used to be. In order to fight them, we mustn't become them. (laughs) So we can't be copying what they are doing. That doesn't mean that we will be less effective. I think it only means that we have to accept that uh, the truth is in a comparative disadvantage to the lie. There are a hundred ways how to lie, and there is just one way how to tell the truth. And yes, there is a comparative disadvantage, but it still means that we have to fight the fight. It just doesn't mean that we should Uh, apply the same weapons that the enemy is is applying. But yeah, one more invitation to the final panel where we will be discussing the the countermeasures. Uh, Anybody else?
4: Uh, Hi, based on your experiences, uh, would you say that uh, taking the more stricter law uh, will help with fighting disinformation? And if so, is there any country that is uh, leading in this uh, matter? Thank you.
2: So, as I understood your question, uh, is it a legal approach to countering disinformation, right? So, it, to, to comment from Lithuanian perspective, I think we are kind of proud that uh, we were probably one of the first to go after uh, Kremlin's uh, channels, you know, based on the uh, uh, incitement to hatred and uh, war propaganda cases. And it was done uh, even before 2014. Uh, uh, the cases uh, there was multiple cases, and uh, uh, there were several cases where the late Jirinovsky was, uh, you know, saying to basically going after Ukrainians, killing Ukrainians, and stuff on 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 live uh, talk shows. Uh, and that was the basis how we reacted. Uh, and there's uh, uh, an interesting story behind it because basically we uh, were enacting uh, uh, European, uh, you know, uh, legislation for that, and we are doing that, you know, probably for one of the first times. There were previous times where, uh, for example, French came after. Uh, I think it was a Hezbollah satellite uh, channel, and then that was a terrorist uh, communications stuff, and, and and so on. And we went after Russian uh, TV channel. And the uh, the basis was uh, because of incitement or hatred. There's a clause on on uh, in the directive, but the problem was that uh, the channel was registered uh, back then in U- United Kingdom, and that is a. Uh, the whole story of this, uh, you know, there is this uh, financial uh, offshoring, and there is this Russian media offshoring, entering European media market, basically just in order to, to use all the you know media freedoms and to make it complicated then to go after them. But we went the whole procedure, it took some time, uh, our court took action, then it was, uh, approved by uh, European Commission and that became a kind of a template later and then Latvians reacted later and then so on. So, so we were basically one of the first ones to, to go. But, but that is a very interesting story of, of the whole, uh, you know, Russian media, uh, you know, offshoring case. Yeah.
1: Uh, Well, maybe shortly, uh, I think that in many cases the the initiatives, the legal initiatives against disinformation have proven to be quite problematic. So the ones that are are based on uh, regulating the content, like uh, in Germany uh, there is a law that, that requires to take down and delete, remove from social media platforms hate speech. Uh, in France, there was an um, a law on uh on banning fake news just before the elections in a certain period of time uh, and I think that both both of these initiatives have quite uh big problems they are problematic uh, but then the the ones that are are based on on sanctioning the organization I think that those have been more uh, more successful, or that's that's uh, sort of the more the, the, the easier way to to go around uh, regulating disinformation. Uh, and Finland also, they there was um, uh, the same very same uh Kremlin propagandist Johan Beckman who harassed uh, journalist caro He tried to um, to buy a radio station in Finland, uh, and he was uh, banned from buying it. Uh, based on national security concerns so I think that there are ways uh, to to find um, to find ways to to regulate disinformation but just they are often some workarounds uh, on on the topic
2: but if I may just a short remark i mean that that's a whole story of how different uh, Our environments are being corrupted, basically by uh, be it Russian, I don't know, energy companies, be it uh, Russian media companies, and so. And in the end, we suffer, right? Uh, So we are uh, opening, we are open kind of pluralistic uh, environments. We are opening up for, and they are abusing those uh, opportunities for them in different in different uh, sectors. Yeah.
0: Great. Uh, do we have any uh, further questions? So, so let 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 me ask one. <laughs> um, we know how many people got killed by COVID. We know how many people get killed by smoking. We know how many people get killed by uh, terrorism. How come that we actually don't have this information for disinformation? <laughs> Again, more a question like are we taking it seriously enough? How come that we don't have the knowledge about how big a threat it actually is uh, and who should be producing it
2: i i mean th- th- that's a uh, you know constant question but uh, just a, maybe a simple answer is that you usually react to that when you learn by the pain i mean uh, when uh, it I mean, on our info front lines, we are constantly bombarded by Russian state uh, disinformation. We start thinking about the consequences and start thinking how to react to all those state Russian TV channels and, and, and so on. I mean, uh, we were doing that in in 2010 plus. I mean, uh, feeling that, you know, by gut, uh, how things are done against us, uh, against our societies and so on. Uh, You cannot uh, kind of uh, explain by word to others that you should react and things are coming at you. You know, when Americans uh, felt that uh, through the, uh, you know, muddling in elections and all this stuff. Yes, it was a political issue as well, but then they started reacting, thinking about it. When, you know, Germans had the Lisa-Girl case in Berlin, they realized that they have a problem in the whole Russian information space and then so on. So, I mean, I'm, I'm not optimistic on that. You learn by the pain, and uh, uh, in this respect, uh, Uh, as more and more Kremlin is pushing, the more and more we are uh, reacting. I mean, this is the case even in NATO uh, perspective. Uh, When Russia was abusing energy tools, we had uh, in Vilnius established excellency center for energy security. When this was done on on, uh, multiple cases in cyber security, in Estonia, in Tallinn, uh, there is a cyber security excellency center. Uh, I mean, in in Latvia, we have NATO, um, Cyber uh, Excellence Center, non-strategic communication. So, I mean, each action Kremlin takes creates a counteraction. You know, uh, hopefully we would be more proactive, proactive on it, but we usually learn by the pain, yeah.
1: Well, maybe to add, I just fully agree that that we learn uh, through experiencing the the pain. I think that one, like one development that has happened again on this Ghost Rider campaign, which is I think quite interesting, is that these things just take a lot of time. Like what Lithuania, how Lithuania was attacked in in 2016 and 2017. Um, it was clear that it's 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 a state actor behind this, and the messaging is aligned with Russia's interests. But it wasn't really clear who is who is actually behind it, behind these campaigns. Uh, and then later on, uh, these attacks spread to Poland. and there they already were a little bit different. Uh, so there was also a hack of uh, Prime minister's office or advisors emails just before the election and these emails uh, kept on uh, leaking to the public and continue still the publishing of these emails leaked emails and they did manage to to gain uh, some some kind of like chaos and impact in 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 Polish domestic debate Uh, and only only when the German election in 2021 uh, uh, came. Only then uh, then when these same attacks continued ahead of the German election uh, and then Germany named uh, Russia's intelligence as, as behind these campaigns. And then the EU also went out and called out Russia as being behind these campaigns. So all of that took five years before uh, getting like this kind of build-up of, of our joint response to the EU level. Uh, so it's, very <laughs> it's a very, very slow process. Uh, and, um, and I wonder if this has stopped the, these actions, or if they are still continuing against Lithuania, at least against Ukraine, they are continuing.
2: I mean, this the whole story of Ghostwriter campaign is a very interesting, uh, but the fun part of it, the, the, the thing that you mentioned, is how uh, uh, it became a focus of analysis and public debate. My uh, thinking about is that uh, because uh, American soldiers became a target of those disinformation campaigns, uh, my guess is that is the reason why big American cybersecurity companies started to get interest in what is going on here. And those were uh, the cybersecurity companies that uh, deconstructed the whole campaign and branded it as Ghostwriter. And that is, again, an, uh, an example of how you learn by experience and you, you, you become the target you start thinking how to, to, to react to that. Proactively, yes, wishful thinking, we would like to be more proactive, but you know, that's life. You, you usually, uh, sometimes it takes time, yeah.
1: <laughs> and one of, maybe one, one more uh, aspect on this, I think that it often, you know, when, when you need to feel the pain and you need to feel it under your skin, what's, what's, what, what is what's the threat and what, what are we talking about? But then I think that what, what makes us very ignorant sometimes is that we think that it affects only some other people, some other who are more stupid, who are like idiots who don't know anything. and we as educated uh, uh, people, we we are on the right side of this and we are not uh, influenced or affected or we are not uh, targets of these campaigns. and I think that that's that's something that that we get wrong. we We should understand that it's anyone can be uh influenced by these campaigns uh, and and well-educated smart people are also the targets uh, especially visible this became during during covet I think the were where several different groups uh, in the society like sort of came together uh, in in and organizing themselves in, in believing uh, in COVID conspiracies and, and taking action against government's restrictions.
0: So do we have any questions from the audience? I see one there and one there. Should so I start?
4: Why not yeah. you start? Okay, uh, I'll expand that a little bit uh, over here, guys. So uh, you actually covered that a bit—the uh, disinformation and attack over the Europe, all over the world, actually. So the question is: What is the trigger limit that actually implies that it's actually an act of war? Because uh, you know, if we take in, into consideration the Russian doctrine of hybrid hybrid war. Uh, we are actually impacted by a war, uh, even though it's a hybrid, that means that we are inflicted by disinformation, uh, basically things that goes against the individual governments of European countries or European uh, Union as a whole. So we are actually, and actually uh, I, I believe that we, you mentioned that we should be more proactive. So what is the trigger event that This is not just passive involving in other people's lives by, uh, yeah, sheer force of uh, Russian culture or uh, their social media, but just it's actually an act of war. So that's the question. Resume this, please.
0: Thank you very much. And before you start answering, could we also take the question
5: there? Sorry, Uh, yeah, do you want a question right now? Okay, Um, well, um, I really like the idea uh, by Ms. Ahonan about um, Finnish public schooling system producing uh, less divided uh, society and uh, nation, if I understood it correctly, and therefore uh, the nation being more uh, resistant to to influences from from, uh, other countries. Uh, I wanted to ask uh, whether you think, you and your colleague, uh, if we can build over some period of time um, a society that is really resistant to disinformation or uh, whether it's more like Huxley said that it doesn't really matter how much information we have around us because there is information overload and... Then the people, the people don't really know what to trust. Uh, is it possible to build a society uh, that is not vulnerable to disinformation, or is it just ongoing process that uh, and which which has no end? Thank you.
1: Well, maybe I start with this uh, with this question then. Um, well, I definitely would would be hopeful and think that it's possible to to build resilient societies and and countries and have uh, have that kind of uh, systems in in place. Uh, but I do think that it it requires a lot of time and it is a process and it's it just and it doesn't mean that it wouldn't be. You know, like a, a democracy is always vulnerable for disinformation attacks. It's it's never going to be fully somehow bulletproof uh, from them. But I think that those you know things inside our societies, things in inside our democracies, are, are you know it's possible to strengthen them in in a way that it's uh, is possible to increase the the trust. Uh, so that's that's where where Finland probably has. Um, made some things right. So it's it's the uh, the investment in education. It's starting the media literacy teaching from kindergarten. Um, it is still quite uh, not divided society, even if the polarization process is happening in Finland as well. Um, and then this, uh, and then this um, conscript army is, is a place also where this kind of societal uh, cohesion is, is, is being built. So these are uh, things which require probably resources and money, but, but it's possible to replicate in other, in other countries. So maybe it's good to, to finish with this uh, hopeful <laughs> end note.
2: Uh, maybe I will start with the other question and come back to, to, to your question. I, uh, with the issue of uh, whether disinformation could be an act of war, I mean, uh, it's a challenge it, it, to illustrate it. It's a constant challenge with uh, cyber warfare, how to interpret uh, cyber attack as an act of war. And in the and this ends up in, in rhetoric. We had, for example, um, John McCain uh, in Lithuania, uh, years ago, in public speech, speaking about Russian cyber attacks against United States as an act of war that needs to be you know counteracted and and so on. But you know he was not in the position to declare this uh, as a kind of act of of war and then and, and, uh, uh, defend from it. But uh, that's the same with the disinformation. It, it's always part of the war. Uh, And it it usually starts before it, because you dehumanize your opponent to make it easier to kill. Then you create a false pretext to to start an attack. And that, you know, happened throughout the history. And then you continue throughout it, uh, you know, during the war like with the uh, Russian uh, strategy to 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 speak about fakes in butcher and 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 everything being fakes and and then creating uh, a debunking projects on on Russian state TV to debunk the Ukrainian fakes and 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 so on. Uh, how you tackle maybe relates to, to 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 your question. I think in the end, I, I think uh, it's an utopia to think that we can live in a information wise sterile world. I mean, We in Lithuania had uh, quite an interesting uh, time uh, back years ago where um, uh, one mysterious uh, Russian author, uh, basically in propaganda outlet, but uh, by invented uh, name and surname, uh, wrote um, uh, each week a kind of uh, opinion uh you know uh, ads on on, on uh, different topics uh, you know with the propaganda twists and so on and he had uh, one article when we started challenging Russian state TVs uh, because of their hate speech and so on he had a title that was called uh, in I will say in Russian and translate total information comfort to translate it a totalitarian uh urge of information comfort in Lithuania. Uh, and I mean, it just still uh, rings in my head, I mean, as a, as a kind of propaganda label, but in, in the end, really, uh, there's no possibility that you can have an utopia of, you know, totally resilient society, uh, you know, without information noise and, and, and so on. But how you can counter it, You know, Scandinavian uh, countries show an example with uh, all source critique uh, initiatives in in schools and and so on. But I would want to challenge uh, you about thinking, maybe let's get back to classical education. It's about logic and rhetoric. So if we would uh, have back in schools those two classical courses, which are the basis of all... uh, uh, you know, manipulation of information, f- logical fallacies, uh, falsities, and and uh, all the rhetorical, you know, uh, creativities. Then we would have a better, maybe resilient society in the end.
0: Perhaps just a small addition to the to the first question: whether disinformation could constitute an act of war? I I just looked up the. Uh, newly adopted strategic concept by NATO, the, the fresh thing from, from a few days ago in, in Madrid, uh, paragraph 27, uh, quote, hybrid operations against allies could reach the level of armed attack and could lead the North Atlantic Council to invoke Article 5 of the North Atlantic Treaty. So there's been definitely some development and it currently looks like, yes, this information could theoretically constitute a war, however, You know, there was a similar thing about uh, cyber operations. Uh, I believe it was the summit in Wales in 2014. As far as I know, nobody has invoked Article 5 because of cyber attacks. And we surely had some cyber attacks since then. So theoretically, it is somewhere there. But we probably still have yet to see whether it will be ever, ever used. Uh, Okay. Nerius, Anneli, thank you, thank you uh, very much for your answers. Anneli will stay here with me for the next panel, and uh, Nerius, you're free to go. Uh, many thanks, many thanks to the audience for the questions as well.